0: Because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, Will Himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To Him be the power, for ever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, without, <clears throat> with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Sandy. Well, good morning, friends. It's lovely to see you. And if you are new or visiting, it's great to have you. With us today. My name is Mark. I'm the senior pastor here. And uh, we, um, we come to meet with God, but we also come to meet with one another. So don't rush off afterwards. Please stay and be community. It's a, a really important part of who we are as a, a church family. So we're coming to the end of our sermon. So before I say that, thank you for praying for Lindsay and I last weekend. We were in Yorkshire. Um, uh, doing a weekend uh, on family at um, a Christian retreat centre. So thank you for your prayerful support of that and for releasing us to go and do that sort of thing around the country. Uh, We're coming to uh, the end of a sermon series today. We've been going through One Peter over the last few weeks and you'll remember that Peter's writing to uh, some scattered believers who have been persecuted for their faith. And he writes to them to encourage them to live for Christ in what uh, could sometimes be a hostile world. And uh, in his message he says he wants them to stand firm. Uh, he warns them that it's, uh, um, th- that hard times are going to come upon them and uh, uh, to remain faithful to the God that they've come to know and trust in their lives. And I think that it's as much a message to us today as it was to the church uh, then. And he finishes the letter today, what would be known as sort of brief comments written from the heart. So he's done the, the main bulk of the letter, and I don't know about you, but if you write a letter to somebody, uh, at the end you might put a PS, mean, we don't do it these days, people email too much, don't they? But you know, if you write something, you might put a PS at the end, You know, hope to see you soon, or uh, did little Joe ever find his raincoat he left somewhere? Or, you know, whatever it might be. A sort of, I've said the main bit, but here's the little PS at the end. And this is what I think Peter does at the end of uh, this letter. Um, and he covers five, in these 14 verses, he covers five fairly important uh, topics. Which Peter saw as important to the church then and are just as important to us today. So I'm going to go through this uh, passage today. If you want to follow in a Bible, grab one from the back. If you haven't got one, or follow with me. He begins this, verse 1 To the elders among you, I appeal as a, a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being an example to your flock. So when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Peter's first PS, his first concluding comment He says you need to be, uh, have the right kind of leader, be the right kind of leader for those in your care. He says that if the church is to survive, then you have to get the right people in leadership. You write to the elders. um, uh, uh, This is those who will be seen as older and wiser, probably more mature in their faith. And he says that a shepherd, God's people, carefully. I love that illustration he uses of a shepherd because a shepherd uh, is somebody who cares first for their sheep, somebody uh, who looks to see what uh, the, the flock need and therefore try and provide it. If it's teaching, then teaching. If it's guidance, then guide. If it's comfort, then comfort. If it's correction, then correction. He says that the leaders are to represent Jesus Uh, to those in their care, the chief shepherd. And I think that these verses emphasize that. You know, when it comes to spiritual leadership, then um, who you are is not as important as what you are. What you are as a person. We're to lay down our our rights, our own desires, our own lives for the lives of others. That's the sort of leader that Peter is uh, encouraging uh, the church here, the scattered church here, to look for. Here at St. Paul's, uh, we run a leadership course for anybody who comes into leadership of any ministry because we take this really seriously. Um, it, it might be children's ministry, young adult ministry, youth ministry, a mercy ministry, whatever it might be. W- whatever leadership position anybody steps into, we encourage them to come and do a leadership course to go through the sort of qualities and character of a leader that is asked for in the Bible. And they're pretty high demands, uh, we think. Uh, And we think it's really important here only to have leaders who will look after those in their care, keep their focus on Jesus Christ, will represent Jesus to others the whole time. I met with a church leader this week um, on Tuesday morning for a coffee and and uh, he just had his um, uh, review with his bishop and uh, he wanted to talk it through with me and we were talking through the review and, and he, said, uh, he said, Mark, for the first 45 minutes of the hour I was there, the bishop was trying to persuade me to leave my church. He said, well, you've been here 10 years, isn't it time you moved on? He said, what does your bishop say to you because you've been there forever and I said, well, actually, my bishop says it's okay. And I, I, I said, what did you say back? He said, well, he said, I said, this is where I'm called to be. These are the people that I'm called to be with. And I don't believe a leader abandons the people. I think they're there with the people. Um, I'm not sure if his bishop accepted that. His bishop wasn't, isn't our bishop. But, but I couldn't agree with him more. That's why Lindsay and I uh, committed when we very first came here to being here and staying here, uh, to choose to put God, the work of God's kingdom here before anything else. We feel that this is such an important work that we do here at St Paul's. So the first command here is to get the right kind of leaders uh, in place. Um, I hope that you do think you have the right kind of leaders in place. And we haven't heard any screams or shouts for us to abandon ship. So we'll take it that it's okay at the moment and keep doing what we're doing. He then goes on, the second comment, look at verses 5 to 6. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up. In due time. Peter moves from the leader, he says, to this scattered church, get the right sort of leader in place. And he moves from the leader to the inner life of the church. And he says to the inner life of the church, you've got to get your relationships right with each other. you are to practice humility. Because humility takes practice. Uh, humility is a tricky thing, isn't it? If you think you have the virtue of humility, you probably don't. That's the problem with it. Uh, It was said that D.L. Moody, a famous preacher, uh, used to pray this prayer, Lord, make me humble, but don't let me know it. And I think that's a pretty good prayer to pray, really, isn't it? That, That we would know humility in our lives. We can't really define humility very well, but we all know true humility when we see it in somebody else's life. We know it when somebody else uh, represents others. I think that um, uh, humility comes from a proper understanding of the grace of God in our lives. Uh, All that we have comes from God. All that we are comes from God. Nothing is earned. Humility is not about running yourself down or hiding your talents or feeling embarrassed about your gifts or your abilities, your accomplishments Humility is just about having the right attitude with everything that you do uh, in life. And Peter says this, Peter says, clothe yourselves with it. Now, a fuller translation would come out, put on the overalls of humility. It's the kind of apron that Jesus tied around his waist when he bent down and washed the disciples' feet. And in our dealing with others, we're to put on that same apron of service, that same humility to enable others. So humility is not about putting ourselves down, but it is about lifting other people up, about uh, about entrusting ourselves into God's hands. It's not about being trodden down or being looked down upon, But it's about saying, I trust God for my overall circumstances. And I, in the meantime, trusting God, will get on with serving other people. That's true humility, I think. So, his first PS is get the right kind of people in leadership. His second PS is practice humility with one another. His third PS in verse 7, he says this, let anxiety go, cast all your anxiety on him, for he cares for you. I don't know if you've ever been on one of those really long walks where you go out for a, a whole day. A few of us here have, have done it together a number of times and you, you perhaps you've walked all day and you've got a backpack on your back and at the end of the day, you literally Cast the backpack off. You can't wait to get rid of the wretched thing that's made you feel uncomfortable all day. And and having taken it off, even though your legs are exhausted, you feel as though you could skip again. Because you've got rid of that weight that's on your back. Well, that's what Peter is talking about here. He says literally, throw off the concerns and cares of the world, cast your anxieties onto God. You know, anxiety in our lives brings a sort of double-mindedness. If we've got anxiety, we are distracted in life. We're often disturbed because we we, we replay those tapes again and again and again and again. I don't know if you know the feeling, I pray you don't, where you wake up in the middle of the night and you have stuff going through your mind and by golly, you can't get to sleep again. And in the night, things always seem much worse than in the day. And you lie there, rehearsing this stuff again and again. And then you're saying to yourself, just go to sleep, you stupid idiots." You know, as you do it. Does anybody else feel that at all? Oh, good, I'm not the only one then. You know, you just go through it, don't you? And we, we carry this stuff. And Jesus actually says, don't don't do that. I, I do it all the time. And he says, don't do it. He says, actually, trust me for your future. You get on with serving other people. Let me care for you. You go care for somebody else. Cast your burdens and worries onto me and you help other people's burdens and worries. It's a real step of faith. Something we so often fail at, but we're encouraged to embrace. So he says, cast your burdens onto him. Then he says, watch out for the enemy, his fourth PS. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. I'm sure that you, uh, like us, have been following the situation uh, with Pastor Nadakhani, whose life has been threatened in Iran because he won't recant his Christian faith. He commented to the judge this week, this is what he said, "'I am resolute in my faith and Christianity.'" and have no wish to recant. He knows that those words could seal his execution. But he has cast his burdens onto Christ. He trusts Christ for his future, his eternal future, not just his human future. In the face of enormous attack and threat to his life, he says, no, I trust... I think my battery ran out. I shan't collapse in a heap. It's just that, you know, I've got Duracell, mate. I keep going, I tell you. We are to trust him, but we're not to be careless in the way in which we live our lives. In fact, The opposite is quite true. I'm fine, really. Yeah, yeah. The opposite is quite true. We're to watch, he says. Watch out for those who try to undermine you. Satan constantly seeks out our weak points. He prowls around. Isn't that what a lion does? Don't you love those nature films? I love those nature programs. I love David Attenborough. I love his voice. I just like listening to it. I've got lots of those DVDs, you know. You can just watch the world is and how it happens and all that sort of stuff. And he says, and here they are in the undergrowth. And all that, you know, the way he does it. You know, I've never seen anything like this before. And, you know, it's fantastic, isn't it? But, but you know, you watch them with the lions. And, and, and they, you see them prowling around. And they look for the weak one. They look for the one that's got a previous injury. The one that can't quite keep up, the one that won't perhaps deal with the situation they need to deal with, the one who's a little bit careless. And you watch as they go and pick them off. That's what a lion does. And you know, for us, it could be anything. Uh, You know, Satan looks for uh, the weak points in our lives. Uh, He looks for the habit we don't deal with, or the temptation we haven't protected ourselves from, or the constant sin that we return to, that perhaps we're all too aware of but don't deal with. Peter says we're to be on uh, on the alert, to not let our guard down. He gives a strategy here. He says this, firstly, he says, resist him by standing firm in your faith. There's no shortcut to this. Standing firm in our faith means being people who regularly read God's word. That, that You know, that's what, what will help us stand firm in our faith. Perhaps greater than anything else, to remind ourselves of God's direction and guidance in our lives. Letting God's word sink in, being humble enough to take our guidance from Scripture, to not think that we know enough in our lives. And then we're more shaped to be like our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not through good ideas or someone else's ideas, but by the words that come from this book that helps, that has the power to actually shape us more like our Savior, Jesus. He says, stand firm. Stand firm on God's word. Stand firm on God's promises. Stand firm on God's past actions and trust Him for His future actions in your life. Secondly, He says, we're to remember those who at this very moment are in a worse situation than you. There's nothing quite like being reminded that there's someone like Pastor Nadakani who is standing absolutely firm in his faith despite what is happening to him. I want to um, just read to you, this is a, uh, a book um, about uh, the, uh, it's called Killing Fields, Living Fields. It's a snapshot of what happened in Cambodia when Pol Pot had a zero tolerance on anybody of the Christian faith and the Khmer Rouge were going around killing Christians. And this is the story of one Christian teacher and his family. This will take me a few minutes to read this, but I think it is worth reading. And this situation still today goes on around the world. Um, unmistakably, through uh, the t- tremulous glare of the early afternoon sun with his own light-headedness from the back-breaking labor, Haim, that's the, the um, uh, Christian teacher, uh, knew that the youthful black-clad Kimah Rouge soldiers were now heading across the field and were coming this time for him. It was the hour when they always came, those brutish servants, uh, dispatched to cull yet more of Cambodia's groveling minions, lingering in this particular twilight zone of the nationwide death camp. Leaning weakly against his hoe for support, itself ironically the primary instrument of execution, Haim watched their easy, menacing, unharried pace along the Paddy embankment, his throat felt dry and uncomfortable fluttering gripped his bowels and his knees threatened to buckle beneath him. But he remained still. Haim was determined that when his turn came, he would die with dignity and without complaint. Since liberation on April 17, 1975, what Cambodia had not considered this day, suddenly a blood-curdlingly naked scream shattered the unearthly stillness of the worksite. Hames swung round to see that another group of soldiers had seized their first prey, some pitiful wretch being being bound and dragged away, blubbering uncontrollably. Across the landscape, eerily, not a soul moved, except for, for Agatha's Black Reapers. The scene resembled some bizarre party game of statues in which each hapless player strained every muscle to render himself immobile, invisible more even faintly out of the line uh, of Anker's ruthless, exacting standard of life and being, and you would be picked off, obliterated, fertilized for the crops. Hame's entire family was rounded up that afternoon. They, they were the old dandruff, bad blood, enemies of the glorious revolution. They were Christians. The family spent a sleepless night comforting one another and praying for each other, as they lay bound together in the dewy grass beneath the stand of friendly trees. Next morning, the teenage soldiers returned and led them from their guest's enemy to a place of execution to the nearby killing fields. The place was grim indeed and bore many gruesome signs of a place of execution. A sickly smell of death hung in the air. Curious villagers foraging in the scrub nearby lingered, half-hidden watching the familiar routine as the family were ordered to dig a large grave for themselves. Then, consenting to Haim's request for a moment to prepare themselves for death, father, son, mother, and children, hands linked together, knelt together around the gaping pit. With loud cries to God, Haim began exhorting both the Kimar Rouge and all those looking on from afar to repent and believe the gospel. Then, in panic, one of Haim's young sons leapt to his feet, bolted into the surrounding bush and disappeared. Haim jumped up and, with amazing coolness and authority, prevailed upon the Kima Rouge, not to pursue the lad, but to allow him to call his boy back. The knots of onlookers peering around trees, the Kima Rouge and the stunned family, still kneeling at the graveside, looked on in awe as Haim began calling his son, pleading with him to return and die together with his family. What comparison, my son, he called out, stealing a few more days of life in the wilderness, a fugitive, wretched and alone, to joining your family here momentarily around this grave, but soon around the throne of God, free forever in paradise. After a few tense minutes, the bushes parted, and the lad, weeping, walked slowly back to the place with his kneeling family. Now we are ready to go, Haim told the Kimar Rouge. But by this time, there was not a soldier standing there who had the heart to raise his hoe to deliver the death blow on the backs of these noble heads. Ultimately, this had to be done by the Khmer Rouge commune chief who had not witnessed these things. But few of those watching doubted that as each of these Christians' bodies toppled silently into the earthen pit which the victims themselves had prepared, their souls soared heavenward to a place prepared by the Lord the thing is we don't like to hear that sort of stuff but it goes on around the world all the time Christians persecuted for their faith and, and Peter says this, he says you look at what's going on in your life beware he says there are others where there's much worse stuff happening so please stand strong that's what he says. Stand strong. People around the world today, like Pastor Nadakani, are giving their lives that they might stand strong and ultimately know their Lord and Saviour. I don't know what's going on in your life, but this is what the Lord will say. Stand strong. There's someone worse off. Stand strong. Because you know, Pastor Nadakani. Pastors like Haim, others around the world, rely on us to pray for them. They they rely on us to be people of faith, to lead by example. Stand, Stand strong, he says. If we compare ourselves to someone like that, I always think, well, what right do we have not to stand strong? And the final PS comes here, the last couple of verses, well, verse 10 to 11. He says, The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be power forever and ever. Amen. How do we handle stress and times of uncertainty? Well, Peter says, I know you're living as... Aliens in a foreign land. But he says, as, as you do so, he says, appoint the right sort of leaders, people who will care for you properly and lead you always to Jesus Christ. He says, be humble to one another. Put each other first. In that way, you'll create the community that you're supposed to create. In that way, you'll always prefer Somebody else, other than you. And, and he says, Don't carry around your own burdens. He says, Look, cast it on to God. He'll care for your burdens. Put others first. Seek to reach out with the love of God into other people's lives. But, but be alert, he says, Don't be careless. Be alert. There is a battle going on, a spiritual battle going on, and the Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for weak places where he can attack. But don't just live for now, he says. Keep an eye on the future. It's all about grace. That's his last point. If you're discouraged, then God has grace for you. If you're struggling, God has grace for you. If you feel like giving up, God has grace for you. His arms are open wide for you. He will restore you. He will make you strong. He will help you to be firm. He will help you to stand steadfast in him. He is the God of all grace. And this isn't some abstract principle. God himself will intervene in our lives if we trust in him. So friends, whatever problems you have, whatever is going on in your life today, then God is the answer. He stretches out his hands to strengthen you. And Peter's great advice to the struggling and suffering church still stands strong for us today. It says, choose the right leaders. Please pray for your leader. I hope you pray for us. Please pray for your leaders. Pray for the leaders of the church. Be humble to one another. Cast your worries on him. Be alert and be aware that God's grace is strong enough for every aspect of your life. Whatever you are going through. Is that okay? Can we stand together? Some prayers before the service. Someone today is feeling downcast and looking down, and and the Lord would love to pick you up. (laughs) If that's you today, in a moment I want you to come and respond to ministry. Another word before the service, they didn't know what I was speaking on, it says this, we're, we're most vulnerable at our weakest point. Don't hide it. Bring it to God this morning in prayer. And an invitation to celebrate your family, your Christian family, your blood family, your marital family, to, to um, demonstrate that humility one to another. Father, would you come by your spirit now? And I want to pray, Lord, that you would minister your love amongst us. That we would be a people who would know your graciousness and your gentleness, but also your saving power and your mighty hand at work in our lives and in the lives of those that we know and love.